My brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Peter approached Jesus and asked him, Lord, if my brother sins against me, how often must I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus answered, I say to you, not seven times, but 77 times. That is why the kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who decided to settle accounts with his servants. When he began the accounting, a debtor was brought before him who owed him a huge amount. Since he had no way of paying it back, his master ordered him to be sold along with his wife, his children, and all his property in payment of the debt. At that, the servant fell down, did him homage, and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back in full. Moved with compassion, the master of that servant let him go and forgave him the loan. When that servant had left, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a much smaller amount. He seized him and started to choke him, demanding, pay back what you owe. Falling to his knees, his fellow servant begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he had the fellow servant put in prison until he paid back the debt. Now when his fellow servants saw what had happened, they were deeply disturbed and went to their master and reported the whole affair. His master summoned them and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you your entire debt because you begged me to. Should you not have had pity on your fellow servant as I had pity on you? Then in anger, his master handed him over to the torturers until he should pay back the whole debt. So will my heavenly Father do to you unless each of you forgives your brother from your heart. The Gospel of the Lord. When people ask how my parents reacted when I began the application process for seminary to actively begin discerning the priesthood, I explain how supportive they were. It wasn't a complete surprise. We had had many conversations over the years, and they had met with my pastor and talked with other priests along the way so that they could discuss some of their understandable questions and concerns, which made them feel a bit more secure and confident when I was taking this big step. There was one thing, though, that got my father a little crazy. Back then, to begin formation for the Archdiocese of Newark, seminarians had to take out loans for the four to six years that a man would be studying at Seton Hall University. If you proceeded and were eventually ordained, 
you would be responsible for 15% of the loan while the archdiocese is making the rest of the payments each year for however long it took to repay it. You were responsible for all the loans if you left and were not ordained. For my father, this was lunacy. My parents had worked hard to put me and my brothers through college. I had worked as a a resident advisor for three years of college so that I could graduate without having any debt. Not having debt was always a, a big deal that was really drilled into us by our parents and our grandparents. Even when my brothers and I went to college and we got our first credit card, they were maniacal in warning us to only use it in an emergency situation and even then pay it off immediately. So that was the mentality that we were raised with. So my father thought that as I'm considering the priesthood and all the sacrifices that are expected with that calling, that if I were to discern that this wasn't my vocation and then to be saddled with tens of thousands of dollars in loans with a theology degree was insanity. When he learned that other dioceses not only didn't make their men do that, but were giving their seminaries a stipend just for studying for their diocese, he thought I was insane for not, as he put it, finding some better options. Long story short, four years later, not long before ordination, the financial aid office at Seton Hall met to explain the different loans that were all in my name and how every October I would get a statement that said I owed somewhere around $700, which was the 15% that the archdiocese would be expecting of me and they would make the rest of the payment for the next 15 years. So I recognized I needed to, to budget to have the funds available each year for this annual payment that was coming due. Even though this was a a manageable amount, I did feel that anxiety from time to time when an unexpected expense popped up like needing new tires for my car. Did I have enough of a buffer? Did I need to make some cuts to ensure that I could cover what I knew was coming due? It was the first time I really experienced holding a, a substantial debt and it helped me to appreciate all the sacrifices that my parents and grandparents had made throughout my life as well as to have some more real-world experiences that most families that I would be ministering to come contend with every single day. It's something that a vast majority of us have a variety of experiences with. And I think that's what makes this parable of Jesus a little bit more accessible and relatable to us. When we hear some of the other parables that Jesus offers in the Gospels, dealing with mustard seeds or sheep, For those of us who don't have a lot of experience farming or shepherding, we have to have them explained in a way that makes sense. But the experience of dealing with the dead, for those who get a paycheck and have a lot of it taken away for taxes and then try to figure out how to pay for whatever's left over, that's a far more common experience. That being said, It's interesting that this translation that we just heard in today's gospel removes a few details that makes the example even more striking. The parable has three acts. The king with his high-ranking servant, the servant dealing with a fellow slave, and then that second encounter between the king and the high-ranking servant. Our lectionary translation has Jesus saying that the high-ranking servant owed 
the king a huge amount. What exactly does that mean? It's not quite descriptive enough. My huge might be different from your huge. Well, the example that Jesus uses in the original text is 10,000 talents, which by 2023 U.S. dollars perspective is akin to this guy owing $8.6 billion. This is a guy who makes around $25,000 a year, yet he owes $8.6 billion. What he did to get into that pickle, I have no idea. But the point is, it's practically impossible for the guy ever to pay that back. He'd have to win the Powerball at its highest jackpot nine times. It's unlikely he's ever going to make even the slightest of dents into this truly astronomical sum. So after that debt's now been forgiven, this guy encounters someone who owed him what Jesus says in the original text was 100 denarii, 100 days wages, which again in U.S. dollars perspective is about $8,000. So the more you sit with those details, the more dramatic this example becomes. Jesus uses this, this dramatic story in response to Simon Peter's question about how often must he forgive his brother's sins? This question always makes me laugh, wondering, did Simon Peter's biological brother, the apostle Andrew, do something that day that got under his skin? Or maybe one of the other 11 apostles was just constantly annoying, butting heads with him and arguing with him? Whatever was Peter's motivation, We have to remember that in all the passages that came before the scripture, Simon Peter has been identified as as the leader of the apostles by Jesus himself. And he's gotten some pretty clear and direct messages that this wasn't because of anything he did, but was directly connected to Simon Peter's ability to keep his focus on Jesus. Simon Peter can't go with his, his first gut instinct when it comes to his leadership. He has to follow Jesus' example. So he's been trying to listen, trying to, to learn from Jesus and to take all this in. And right before this whole scene, what we heard last week was the importance of bringing up an issue of an infraction done by a brother one-on-one and hash out that problem with them, desiring to, to reconcile as the goal. So Simon Peter has heard all that, and he's trying to get clarity. How many times? How many infractions? When is enough enough? He's asking Jesus, what's reasonable in terms of forgiveness? For Jesus, the reality is there's nothing reasonable about forgiveness. For many cultures and religions, forgiveness is seen as a weakness. Even for the Jews up until this point, while they had experienced God's mercy multiple times and in many ways, their thoughts of mercy was was Moses allowing an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Mercy for them was where, where justice was being harnessed to prevent vengeance. But in this parable, Jesus is completely redefining the terms. Forgiveness is not a sign of weakness, but acting godlike. Mercy is not about mitigating one's revenge, 
but being an act of sincere, genuine love. So in the parable, not to dismiss the 8,000 debt as being a no big deal, particularly for these two guys who it's going to account to about 100 days of work. But in light of the extravagant generosity of the king wiping away an $8.6 billion debt, a sum that this man and generations of his family could never have repaid, how does that not completely change his entire worldview? And that's the question for us as well. Does this change ours? Because that's the point of the story. And that's the point of the cross. Jesus the King looks at each and every single one of us who by our sins rack up an astronomical sum that would be impossible for us to ever work off. And he wipes out that debt by laying down his life on the cross. How does that change our worldview? Particularly in a world where people, corporations, even governments run up wild debts saying, well, everybody does it and no one ever expects it's going to be repaid. Where there's this arrogance that forgiveness is something that we're just entitled to. Those attitudes have had disastrous consequences on a, on a worldly level, but they're even worse on the spiritual level. About five years after my ordination, having made about five of my seminary tuition loan repayments, Archbishop Myers had been recently installed as the Archbishop of Newark. And in getting familiar with our archdiocese, he learned about this tuition repayment. And he quite suddenly announced in the letter that from that day forward, he was no longer going to ask seminarians to take out loans to begin formation for the priesthood here in, in the Archdiocese of Newark. So at the same time, he was going to forgive all outstanding loans. And enclosed with that letter was paperwork which released me from any further obligations. Some could have diminished that gift saying, well, that's what they should have done in the first place. Some could even argued, well, do I get those other five payments that I've made already back? Forgetting what had been agreed to, ignoring the generosity that had been extended, and receiving it with humility and gratitude. Recognizing what had just been done and looking for opportunities to be similarly generous. We can't presume God's mercy or treat Jesus' death on the cross as some blank check that allows me to do whatever we want and it's all good. And we can't let that gift of mercy not to affect how we treat one another. The cross is meant to cause us to desire never to accrue any further debt. So we're to strive to resist temptation actively. And we have to repent and turn away from those sins when we fail. Go to confession when we fail. Recognizing how those sins nail Jesus to the cross. And we're to just as actively strive to offer forgiveness to others. It's true. Some people hurt in ways that seem impossible even to consider the topic. I watched this documentary this past week that revisited memories of September 11th with the anniversary. 
And just seeing and hearing stories of families ripped apart by those terrorist attacks over 22 years ago. But for many, they sound as grieved and pained as if it just happened yesterday. There's that impulse to say, well, this doesn't apply to them. But it does. And it applies to all of us. At the same time, while I don't believe Jesus expects us to be as ready and willing and able to do what he does as perfectly as he does. But he does expect us to refrain from saying, I will never forgive you. He challenges us to be open to forgiving. Not pretending something didn't happen or forgetting it or even saying things are ever going to go back to the way they were before whatever hurt happened that occurred. But he does expect us to try. And when we fail to try again and again, and to never give up on trying to forgive someone else, remembering that no matter how many times we struggle, he has never and will never give up on us.